0: Plushcare dot com slash weight loss. David, can you remember? Can you remember the first time and perhaps even the last time that you met uh, Richard Moore?
1: Well, the first I was actually listening to a, a podcast that he did uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the first bike race he went to as a journalist. Uh, it was two thousand and two. Criterium de Dauphiné, and it was uh, to interview me, um, simply because he was writing for a Scottish newspaper, and I was the only angle that maybe would would kind of get the piece in there. Um, I can't remember that, because listening back to how he tells a story, I probably wasn't in a very good headspace, and was a terrible interviewee, uh, yet that was kind of the first time we met, and then we started to kind of build the relationship. Particularly post my ban um, in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, uh, and we became good friends. We, I think we spent New Year's together in Scotland in two thousand and two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven. And I think
0: Richard, I think Richard once told me about that trip. He yeah. Yeah, and, and did everybody get sick or something? Yeah, did, it was... You know, everyone it was c- Everyone went down with the flu, and you had to go around from bedroom to bedroom nursing people back to health. It, it was something.
1: horrific. <laughs> it was probably one of the most horrific New Year's ever. And we were in this castle that was freezing, and yet it was uh, him and Virginie, it was the first time we'd met Virginie, and it, it was really... It, we always got on so well, because he just had that such dry Scottish wit. And... And I think we got on because I didn't have um many, well, you know, there's not many Scottish people lurking around in the pro cycling world. Yeah. And so we had that natural sort of affinity and similar sense of humor. And always stay connected. And he's always such a great um supporter of mine. Uh, And not uh, at a personal level, you know, he always kind of had yeah. my back. And which I think looking at all the the, the comments and remarks on social media yesterday, it was a common trait that everyone experienced it was that I know he's such a kind of funny one because he'd, he, he had quite a, um, he could be, how would I put it? That dry wit I was talking about. You could never really take him that seriously. And you always thought he was just kind of, you could never tell how much he was caring or he'd rob you up. And he was always kind of almost playing games and, yeah, no, the last time I saw him, where would that be? It would. Be, yeah, well, the pandemic has... Yeah, it's just scuppered all, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, we'd always cross paths at the Tour de France. Because it, the only time I'd really see him would be at the Tour de France, because that's one of the few races we did. Mm. And, but, ah, it's just so sad, Ned. It's it's he kind of. It was, I don't know what well, we often say this, but he was one of those people that was just so full of life.
0: I think what's become, I think you're right, you know, reading the the many, many tributes that have come from all these different quarters yesterday and the shock, the sense of deep, deep set shock throughout. And what is, you know, talk about this in a bit, but it did make me think once again, how very glad I am to be operating for my professional life in this sport and not in others, because I got the strong sense of the community, the wider, the wider community. Which embraces not just the world of journalism, uh, but the the, the fan base, if you like, the wider fan base. And also, and this is critically important, the riders and the teams. Mm. You know, the the numbers of comments that I read from from team accounts or from individual riders um, paying their respects to Richard's career and often supplying or furnishing a little bit more detail along the lines of what you've just said you know about uh, encounters or specific memories of dealing with richard what became apparent throughout all of that over the course of yesterday which i found a very very hard day yesterday um uh b- but what became apparent and really i should have realized a long time ago and didn't realize because it takes a kind of seismic moment like this for you to be brought to your senses and this is always what happens in life regrettably but what i don't think any of us had realized is um how the particular place that richard moore occupied in our galaxy for want of a better word in our solar system of kind of our ecosystem of how we all interrelate and how we all get on and it takes his absence now to realize that he was right at the center Mm. you know he he was right at the centre he um, was equally comfortable and this isn't always the case uh, with journalists right he he was equally comfortable having very close friendships and relationships with us in the broadcast world Mm. um, with the riders themselves with the teams and um, you know he he also gravitated from being a first class sports writer into becoming a first class podcaster and broadcaster Mm which is something that, you know, a kind of transition that not many people are able to make. And as a result, uh, just in professional terms, he was, um, he was central. He, he, was, he, was, he was central. And over and above that, David, I, I would suggest it was his, um, and again, it comes back to what you were saying, this common thread of how people have paid tribute to him, his uh, enormous personal warmth and mm. his, his um, accepting nature his non-judgmental accepting nature of uh, the humans he came into contact with that I think, and, and the way he was actually, his instinct was not to tear things down, but to build things up and to be a supporting presence um, in, in so many different ways. I, it's, it's some, um, and I'm saying all this now out loud because I've, it's all I've been thinking about for the last 24 hours. And I'm saying it out loud, regretting very much that I never said it out loud to him mm. uh, which is often something that you, I think you feel when someone goes but I feel it particularly keenly w- with the case of Richard because you don't know what you've got till it's gone mm. and it's one of those moments again
1: I think also with Richard when you kind of look back at his kind of career in journalism and the way he went from being a bike racer into it and he properly grafted his way up kind of through the, through the ranks from kind of freelancing hitching rides with William Fotheringham kind of trying to find riders kind of like me and track them down himself. And, you know, and I I think that trajectory is, is also what made him so, so integral because he respected the, the profession. He, he has actually been around bike racing a bloody long time Mm. and through some of the most pivotal moments, and I mm. think, as you say, I don't think any of us quite realised that he was very much at the centre of it all. Yeah. And I don't think even the humility he had, and perhaps when, you, when you're at the coalface like he is, and so creative and always and so professional, he probably didn't realise that he'd become one of the bastions of the of cycling journalism. It, because
0: sport, uh, well, I'd go further a, than that. I'd say sports sports writing. Mm. You know, I mean, it was it was notable yesterday that a lot of people. Uh, who I'm in contact with because I've written about other sports as well. So gen, more general sports writers, uh, not only knew Richard but had read his work and kind of and paid respect as not not a cycling genius a sports writer, you know. Oh, well, I was I recommending mean,
1: yesterday to sort of like the Bolt Supremacy and the Dirtiest Amazing writer. Book, I mean, they're brilliant books, um,
0: amazing um, books, amazing thanks. books.
1: Yeah,
0: I was talking last night, David. I met I met, um, I met um, with a friend who uh, used to be a producer at ITV Sport and has subsequently gone off to found the leading independent uh, sports documentary production company in the world, which hmm. has strong ties to Netflix and stuff. And um, he is working on a documentary uh, right now about um, 1988, the 100 metres final. And I said, have you read? Hmm. <laughs> I couldn't believe the coincidence. I have you read? And he completed my sentence. Yeah, the dirtiest race. Yeah. And, and, and um, of course, he said, it's absolutely our Bible Mm-hmm. But you know, Richard's going back to his career trajectory. I think you're really right. The way he grafted is exactly the right word. And he he also had to overcome, um, with a degree of humility, a um, a slightly bumpy start to his writing because the first book that he published was not without its controversy. You know, um, "In Search of Robert Miller" was the title. Left. Um, w- w- sold really well was very uh widely re- and positively reviewed but it 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 did it, it was not without its controversy it did upset pippa mm. greatly it resulted in it resulted in the daily mail lifting uh some of the content from the book and um and and uh picking away at pippa's uh private life and it resulted in um i think richard had to ask himself some really soul-searching questions about whether he'd done the right thing, uh, whether he'd overstepped the mark. And, um, and, funny enough, I was just reading a an essay that he wrote in the cycling anthology that Lionel Burney and Ellis Bacon mm. produced back in the day. And, and Richard was, um, you know, reliving that from a, a perspective of a few years on. But whatever lessons he learned from that first book, he then took into the rest of his writing, and it just went from strength to strength to strength. And I, I remember when he was writing. Um, the bolt supremacy which was a really interesting proposition in itself because he was writing that at an era in which um you know well when hasn't there been an era really but but cycling was obsessed about doping um and it was it was Uh, and that those those same suspicions and accurate assumptions that people have made about cycling were being transferred into athletics it was around about the the um the london olympics in 2012 when he was writing that book and i think i'm right in saying that richard went into his analysis of usain bolt and the world of jamaican sprinting um expecting to uncover a viper's nest And to find a trail that led inexorably and inevitably to a substantial doping program. I think that was the book he was expecting to write, David. Mm. And um, he went to Jamaica, spent a lot of time. I think he went on two separate occasions to Jamaica. Spent a lot of time in Jamaica. Asked all the hard and right questions. Ferreted away and returned, broadly speaking, with a conclusion that he wasn't expecting to come across which is there are doping is possibly one explanation but i saw no actual hard and fast evidence of it in the case of usain bolt but there is another explanation that either lives alongside the doping story or entirely separately and actually goes much further to explain why jamaican sprinters are the best in the world and that is um that sprinters are superstars in jamaica Mm. um, and for generations they have had the best and most advanced coaches in sprinting in the world. And they have a thoroughbred tradition of being the best in this sport. So it's not come from nowhere. It's not, you know, and and it's a brilliant book. I really advise you to anyone who hasn't read that book to read it partly because it's just beautifully written. And I remember Richard having a crisis about, about the book and sending before he submitted his first draft to Matt Phillips, who was his editor at the time at penguin random house, um, who, you know, David very Mm. well. Um, he he had real self-doubt about the book and sent me a a, a rough draft of it uh, asking for my comments and feedback. And I remember feeling kind of slightly humbled by that and a bit perplexed why he even wanted my judgment. But I read it thinking, I couldn't have done that. Hmm. You know, there's some writing there that I couldn't have done. And uh, he was, and I say all this just by way of saying that he was a very, very, very good writer indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and and he was also a cyclist. He'd been a racer. I was wondering whether, because he died at the age of 49, David, how old are you now? You're 40, 45. Five. So yeah. you're four years younger than Richard. I, I should
1: have been on the Kuala Lumpur S- I was say, Scottish combat ever... team, but I chose to go to the Tour de Lavonnier instead. Ah,
0: Would that yeah. have been the only occasion where your paths might have crossed?
1: That would have been the only when we'd have been on the same team. On the same team. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't uh-huh. think have ever raced with him. It might have done, but I don't think so because I didn't spend much time. Back in the ranks. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but no, he'll be missed.
0: He'll be, uh, he'll be, he'll be badly missed. Well, um, God, we haven't podded for a while, have we?
1: No. There've
0: been a few no, attempts, haven't. but they've been scuppered by life.
1: Yes, life does get in the way. It does. It does. Yeah. Well, um, fortunately, it's meant there's a lot of racing to catch up on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> kind of mind-blow,
0: mind-blowing amounts of racing. I went to Italy, David. Yeah. I went to San Remo.
1: Uh, as a fan or as a... No, as a, was a shouty guy. Ah, oh, the shouty guy, nice.
0: Yeah, well, nice ish, except for the fact that I was doing World Feed commentary, which you now know all about. All day. Oh, that's not a short
1: race, is it, Milan no, I, would say I was in the studio that day and uh, I had it on and I kind of turned it on. It was 200Ks to go and I was watching GCN, which I had here, and I was just like, you poor buggers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but they had I, I don't they had know for a fight 17 people. I would yeah. imagine they did, didn't they? Swapping in and out, yeah. going and getting lunch, coming yeah. back, you know, going to have a little kip. Oh, sorry, I've got a cat checking in with Brad. Checking with Brad on the bike. Brad was yeah. on the bike, was he? Was yeah. he at the Milan Remo? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what he does now.
0: That's what he does. Um yeah. but uh, no, it's me and Matt Stevens in the commentary booth all day without any support and any commercial breaks or anything like that. So um yeah, it was it was pretty intense. But there was this whole kind of narrative in cycling twitter about um oh it's so boring Milan Sanremo and it's too long and it's so boring
1: and I, I don't know there, I mean, it's, it?
0: it's not and it's
1: also well it is but it's not I don't think it is I think we need to be I think it's I think it's kind of like a it's one of, I always thought it's the most the archetypal bike race in that there's like ninety nine percent nothing, then one percent of absolute <laughs> madness. And but it's the only race where it's such a definitive moment. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. it's just it's gonna happen on the Podium. Yeah, and it takes them two hundred and ninety kilometers to get there. Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that sums up bike racing perfectly. It's the best way for the layman cycling fan or the, introduce somebody to bike racing. Because I go, what you, you watch this all day, and it all happens here. Why don't you just start watching it eight k's to go? And you'd be like, no, yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, that's you've got to cheat- watch loads cheating. of it beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Because then you kind of yeah. it builds up the tension, and you kind of you come up with seventy three different scenarios. And <laughs> something's going to happen, and then the thing the favorites tend to just always be there. And I think it, and I think it's a, the most romantic kind of example of of bike bike racing and, and why we love it because it's just a bonkersness.
0: And it's also got its its own character, hasn't it? So you could, mm. you know, it's not, it's self-evidently not a Belgian one-day classic. I mean, you know, yesterday I was watching Dwarsdor Flanderen which Mm. if you and the first thing i did was i put into google dwarsdorf lander 2022 parkour and i did a google images search and i got the map up and it's insane because it's just switching direction all the time just squiggling around probably doesn't sort of gravitate much further than 20 kilometers in any compass direction from its origin and its finish line but that's belgian racing whereas milan sanremo i was thinking about it um you know, it's it's a three hundred kilometer race because it's three hundred kilometers from Milan to San Remo. <laughs> you know, yeah. the only way they could shorten it would be by saying uh, it's Milan San Remo, but it's going to start from Savona.
1: <laughs> mm. um, but, but again, that's what that's why it's such a a, a classic and, and monuments because that's what bike racing used to be. Exactly, Paris you know, Tour Paris-Bres de France was literally just a, a a line drawn around the outside of France. Yeah. You yeah, know, and it's like Bordeaux, Paris, and you had yeah, yeah. It's like Paris, Brussels, and there were Paris, Brest, Paris. Yeah. You know, it's just they were all point to points, Paris, Roubaix. Yeah, and it's only the Flanders ones, which are the like my six-year-old daughter's given been given to access to a map and a crayon. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. I, I've got it. It was always my favourite race, around San Remo, when I was a young cycling fan in Hong Kong. I always yeah. thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, but it was a good race in the end, and I. I was a little bit.
0: Um, it was a very good race in the end. Was, yeah, but uh, sorry, just to go back was, before yeah. we talk about the Chirpess and the Poggio and all that, I, if I can even remember what happened, um, we came up. We had hours, me and Matt, to try and kind of formulate and discuss what's going on in the race and 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 how how important the first six hours of racing are really in the kind of narrative of this race and the individual characteristics of Milan San Remo. And we were kind of coming up with, I think the best one we came up with was, it's like trying to, so the, the sheer slowness of the attrition mm. and the, the sheer slowness of the buildup of fatigue that will, that will ultimately and inevitably affect you in unforeseeable ways when you come to the efforts at the end um, is akin to trying to empty a bathtub with a, with a teat pipette. <laughs> so each each kilometer it makes no visible difference but each kilometer you yeah. go Dink, and you take a tiny bit of water out like that and so that makes no difference in itself but when you add it all together that's the point isn't it and uh yeah. that i think that is the sort of particular cruelty and beauty of milan sanremo
1: yeah um, it's bonkers because are there all day it's, it's easier in the wheels and then I, I think it's in the capos with uh, like 50 k's to go you just know yeah. if it's, you've done everything right, you felt great, and then you hit one of those capos and you go to get out your saddle and your legs don't work and you're like, oh, <laughs> come on, everything that, right. That for this. <laughs> and then you're just getting, and then everyone else looks all right and you're getting dropped. Yeah. And that's what happens. It's kind of, everyone thinks they're okay. Then all of a sudden, one by one, you're not yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 And then you get to the podium and sure enough, all the big guns are there. Matthew Vanderpool. First race back,
0: Matthew Vanderpool. First race back, not too shabby. Jesus, gutted that's... not to win it as well, wasn't he? Absolutely, oh, was face like a slapped ass on the podium. He just, you know, well, that's what's the point in being here when I'm not on the uh, top? I know
1: it's brilliant. That attitude's so good, isn't it? Most people are like that. Ah, it's my first race back. I'm pretty happy. I Do with that. yeah, B- like, yeah, oh, yeah no, win podium,
0: it. Podium, podium of a monument. Honestly, yeah. just like, it, honestly, couldn't disguise his disgust. <laughs> well, Harvey and I were equally disgusted.
1: Oh, you got that, that kind of... little Matthew Vanderpool Girona fan club there, yeah. haven't you? I was a big fan of him. President and yeah. secretary. And then yeah. Pogacar was just, it's the first time Pogacar kind of, his attacking, it was too much, you know? Yeah. He just thought he was going to ride away from everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was like three attacks, three big attacks which nobody can normally do on the podium, obviously it's Pogacar. Yeah. And then, uh, I'll be honest, I was, because I was so invested in Mathieu van der Poel and <laughs> and and <what, laughs> I was a little bit disappointed when Moritz clipped off. And it was only after the race and kind of a it back I was like that was actually really cool.
0: Yeah, it was Daredevil stuff, wasn't it? it yeah, it, it, I yeah. mean he
1: was just all in. I mean sarcasse.
0: So you talk about a six and a half hour race, actually it distilled down to um, probably 1.5 seconds of racing over the top of the Poggio when he'd done his tricky thing that I think you need to explain about the, the, the seat, um, the the Mm. dropper post, Um, come to that in a second, but there's 1.5 seconds where he runs the bike. He's going so hard. He runs the bike into the gutter and then has to bunny hop back over the little gravelly bit Mm. into the road. And that's the point. Not only that he keeps it up, there staggeringly, but that's also the point, really importantly, where Tade Pogaccia, 23 years of age, the best bike rider in the world, goes, Oh, I'm not gonna. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. He just, I'm gonna give him some. He space. just went,
1: That man's an idiot. <laughs> he may be then, Slovenian, it, but then he but, went around the next corner and was like had full wheel sliding. Oh, yeah, so ho- oh, it's ho- it was horrendous. It, was, just, it was, was horrific. It was, he was.
0: Going, and that's when he won. He was going to make
1: it or crash badly.
0: That's when he won the yeah. race, isn't it? He just went, and oh. Sade Pogac just let the wheels go there. And said, "Well, I'm, <laughs> I've got, you know, I might win Milan Sanremo Remo next year, maybe when Moraich isn't behaving like an absolute nutbag um, <laughs> off the front. But explain, can you explain the the biomechanics of the dropper post and why that yes, makes you fast? So,
1: I mean, it's used primarily in mountain biking, and because it's for when you go down a really steep descents. you you drop the seat down and you can put your your bum right over the back wheel and, and keep the balance. So that's the, the original use of the dropper post was for, for mountain biking and for doing those super technical descents where you need to put all your weight back over the back wheel to for when you're going down near vertical drops. But it was Moritz in the 20... How, what year was that when he did that descent where he started the seat post? The under-23 the under, the under
0: 23 worlds. Yeah, um, it a few was, years ago. Oh, it's it a, t- it a long it time said, ago. 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe, I don't um, know.
1: So he started that trend and we all saw it and laughed at him doing it kind of, and, but he won. And <laughs> then the pro peloton started doing it and yeah. it? it's, it's since been banned. Yeah. And uh, so the dropper post, I couldn't actually pinpoint to see where he used it, but he would use it for two reasons. One, to either kind of give him a bit more handling around the corners so he can actually change his weights more easily. Uh, or secondly, he drops it down and he can get lower and reduce his frontal surface area. But they're, they're the only reason it's a real marginal gains. But if he's, if he feels that, that he can just shift his weight, because it, put it this way, when you go mountain biking, it's a more extreme example. Whenever you get to the top of a hill, you drop that post down and you just slam it down. Cause then you've got so much more control of the bike because you can move it more side to side. Cause you've not got the saddle jammed in, jammed in your legs. So I think he was using a combination of increasing the, the, the handling of the bike in sections, uh, and for aerodynamics, just dropping down that little bit more. So it's a kind of, it's a halfway house between the sitting on the top tube, actually just lower himself down a bit. But I, I don't know. He hasn't given an answer, an answer as to how he used it or even if he used it, because I couldn't even see him using it on the foggia. Well,
0: he definitely said he used it. Um maybe because it's just not
1: much, maybe we're just chucking it down. He might have just been using it like two inches just to get a yeah. little bit more movement going around the corners.
0: Yeah. What I want to know is did he then I mean, I don't know how these things work mechanically. Did he then when he hit the when he when he came off the descent and he had that final two K, did he then go back up again?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, because it's just you've just got a little hydraulic sort of button. And so you can, the, you can you can then raise the post again. It, just, it literally just pops back up. Pops back up. Fires yeah. back up because it's got like a hydraulic pressure. Yeah. And then you, then you use your weight. You, when you push that button, you use your weight and you push it down. Yeah. And then you take your weight off the Oh, I see. It okay. It springs it back up again.
0: That's <laughs> so cool. I mean, That's it's quite cool. cool. We had a little bit of a... You and I were exchanging messages after that. And I said, well, it was a little bit yeah. cheaty. And you went, no, no, it's brilliant. And I went, well, yeah, it's brilliant, but also a little bit cheaty. I mean, obviously it wasn't yeah. cheating, was it? Because they, they're not no. daft by our victorious. So they would have done their they would have scoured the UCI regulations and realised that there isn't a UCI regulation. <laughs> so in the, absence of any, in the absence of any regulations, you might as well just do it. Sure. But uh, what, was quite, what was quite interesting was that, uh, I think the assumption immediately afterwards was that that would happen once and once only because the instance it had happened, the UCI would say, well, you can't do that ever again. And actually, that's not what they've said, is it? They've said... No, they said it's fine. Crack on?
1: Yeah, Crack go on. for it.
0: So do you yeah. think that will become a feature of everybody descending all the time?
1: I think it's, it's a very particular skill to be able to actually benefit from it. Um, yeah. Because it is adding weight to the bike as well. Yeah. but um, And yeah. you have to, even with the dropper post, it wasn't the dropper post that was giving him those handling skills.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know,
1: he is yeah, a, He's just, the, one of the best descenders in the world and yeah. always has been. So, and it just goes back to that. Old, it was just another little marginal gain that he was putting on top of his. He'd probably won it without the dropper post, but yeah. he definitely won it with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Have you watched any of the other racing? Have you seen Uh, much bits and bobs? Yeah. Um, Everyone shifts up to Belgium. E three. The E three Saxo Classic.
1: Mm, Another classic.
0: Who won that? Was that?
1: That was Wout. The two of
0: oh, it was was, Wout with a big solo attack, wasn't it? No, Christophe Laporte. No, the two of them. Oh, it was that one. one? It was that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like. The repeat of... Um, mm. They the did Paranistos, 40 k to two but, of them, didn't oh, they? Just,
1: yeah, yeah. And it was just everyone just came out of it and was just, like, shocked and awed by Jumbo Visma. Uh, what's, I think the, the the big story is the absolute lack of quick step.
0: Yeah, they've not been anywhere near them. Anywhere. I mean, they've, ha- they've not had Julian Alaphilippe to deploy, admittedly, because mm-hmm. he's coming back from um, stomach illness, isn't he, or, or, or something mm. like that, or bronchitis. Um, mm. so yeah, they've been, they've been totally absent. They've yeah, been so relying they on pitch. sort of like their second string, if you like, and the, a bit of their old weapons mm-hmm. without, without having a really kind of fresh. Yeah. They've had Stubar trying to get involved and it hasn't been terribly. and Ballerini's been like, I don't know what's happened to him and it's all been a bit underwhelming and they haven't had Tim Clercq's only just come back into action hasn't he, to do all that controlling yeah. phase of the race. And yeah, interesting.
1: I mean, maybe it's just, um, it goes to show as well if a team, gets it slightly wrong in the winter uh, and it goes to show how important that teamwork is because obviously Young Visma have just nailed their winter mm. you know the training and the, the the attitude they've had towards it and you have to ask a question of Quickstep done something wrong over the winter because the yeah. whole team is just not it's not firing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, Um apart from Mark
0: apart from Mark Cavendish yeah he took a where yeah. did he take a win Ranturin milano torino yeah which um milano torino it's interesting what they've done to that because it kind of uh, c- caught everyone by surprise but actually it shouldn't have caught everyone by surprise because it shifted a couple of years ago didn't it it shifted milano torino from its autumn birth so to speak to become a, a, a sprinter's warm-up race for milan Sanremo. Mm. it's a totally um, different race it's, totally it's different one different.
1: those ones totally whether because it's what is it the oldest classic yeah semi-classic Oldest yeah. classic, yeah, but it was it was famous for so many years because it finished on the velodrome and had the hard finish. And yeah. It was a very, it it had that classic finish. Yeah. Yet it's still
0: the Fausto Coppi velodrome. Is that yeah, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I did right the hour record. I went, I went. I went past that the other day because I did a little bit of tourism. It's quite yeah. funny actually because we went up the. Um, I, I was showing Kath, I was showing her Turin, which she'd never been to before. So we went, we were in uh, San Remo where we spent a, the uh, the day after the race. Then we hired bikes and rode down that amazing um, cycle path that goes down the Ligurian coast that used to be the old railway track before they um, oh, wow. basically repurposed it. And it was absolutely brilliant. So we rode into this absolutely howling headwinds that had been the same headwind that had affected, or tailwind that had affected Milan-San Remo only turned up to the power of sort of five the next day it was really really windy and uh kath rode further than she'd ever ridden in her life and then we turned around oh, wow. then we turned around on these heavy city bikes and then picked up this amazing tailwind and just sailed back to san Remo it was fantastic oh, and then we went and then we went by train on um, the next day to from san Remo to turin but as soon as we got to san Remo station which is absolutely bonkers, by the way. San Remo railway station, I don't know when it was built, the new one. Oh, the old...
1: Belle Epoque. Oh, is that a new one? No, no, no yeah, the, the old Belle Epoque,
0: absolutely, mm. totally Belle Epoque um, railway station was on obviously on the old railway lines right mm. in the middle of town, close to the water, and the, the old structure is still there. But sometime in the, I'm going to say 80s or something like that, they built a high-speed rail line and closed the old one. And... um And it kind of, it's a little bit further inland. And a lot of it on that Ligurian coast just goes through the most amazingly long tunnels. Mm. And San Remo Station itself is in a tunnel. And, um, but the outside, you know, where you walk in, the station concourse is kind of like all concrete and modern and kind of looks like it's built in the 80s or the 90s. And then you walk on like travelator, escalator things, you know, like getting airports to get to the platforms but you walk for quarter of an hour into the mountain it's quite extraordinary and then you get into the and then so anyway we did all this we got onto the platform um to find that uh there was an announcement scrolling across the screens there was no one else in the station and an announcement scrolling on the screen saying with my bad italian i managed to decipher it eventually i'm saying due to industrial action in the region of liguria um, a lot of our, uh, uh, trains are either canceled or running with severe delays and that was mm. it. And it didn't say anything like that. So what should have been a really simple journey took us almost the entire day to get Ugh. from, uh, San Remo to Torino. But we spent a couple of nights in Turin and, um, on day one, I said, you and I should go and see the Superga because it's beautiful with the basilica on the top. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because that is where the old Milano-Torino, before it became a sprinter's race, the mm-hmm. autumn Milano-Torino always used to finish, didn't it? And where in the past, Michael Woods has won in recent years and mm-hmm. Chavez and people like that. I think Fabio Aru won a race up there uh, relatively recently. It's an amazing hillside um, climb just outside Turin. And you look down on the whole city of Turin. Anyway, we got there. Sorry, it's a really long, rambling story. But we got there, and um, I was intent on making Kath walk up the entire climb, which is a five-kilometre climb. Um, But it was only when we got there that we realised there's a little funicular railway that goes up to the top of the Suberga. So we thought, oh yeah, jump on that. So jump on that, happy days. Went up, saw the Basilica. And then I said, yeah, but let's walk down. That'd be easy, wouldn't it? And we don't have to walk on the road. We can find these little pathways to pick out down the mountain. Oh my God, David. Worst mistake I've ever made. Oh God. It was, um, she stopped talking to me after about an hour of picking mm-hmm. our way down these um, little, tiny little paths. And I could sense we were also getting further and further away from Turin as we got like <laughs> so I knew that even when we got on the, off the bottom of the hill there'd be a long yomp back into civilization because I hadn't really looked at the map before we kind of committed to that course of action so, um, so anyway and before I leave it Turin alone can I recommend to anyone who goes to Turin the most extraordinary museum I've ever been to in all of my life the Museum of Criminal Anthropology <laughs> yeah Um, It is the life's work of this absolute nutbag in the late 19th century called Cesare Lombroso, who was a doctor. But he believed strongly, he did all this very, very bogus, but at the time, cutting-edge research into the, the, the skulls and the brain structure and the facial structure, bone structure, of the criminally insane, right? And he then established, according to his own highly dubious uh, scientific techniques, he established that just by measuring, you know, the width of someone's nose, the gap between their eyes, and various different other um, facial features, you could predict with a degree of um, accuracy whether or not they would go on to commit murder. <laughs> oh my god! And you know, awesome. and the, and the whole but the whole museum has got like hundreds and hundreds of skulls of the criminally insane from asylums in italy from the early 20th century late 19th century and um wax face masks of the criminally insane So it's his wax face mask and it says how many people this person this person murdered you know oh my God. Uh, it's the most extraordinary museum and the first thing you see when you walk in is cesare lombroso's entire skeleton which he said, I want my work to be exhibited for the people and I want uh, my own skeleton when I'm dead to hang um, in the, uh, uh, the, uh, be the first thing you see sort of thing. Unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, Benito Mussolini later became quite a fan of of Cesare Lombroso's um, work. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's incredible. His face measured. It's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, Then I went to Milan and then I went to Munich all on a train. I've got, i got a sleep. We got a sleeper train from Milan to Munich. It was brilliant. We had a little two berth sleeping compartment, little bottle of terrible champagne um, on the, on our. There's a little welcome present with some slippers and all this hmm. sort of thing. Got served a really nice breakfast in the morning. Took thirteen hours. Really good night's sleep. Cost a hundred euros each. No, that's amazing. It's amazing. No, it's, it's amazing. Absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Anyway,
1: back to bike racing, David. Yes. Um, what else have we got look. Look. What else is there? it was Catalonia but I didn't watch that Gent Wevelgem <laughs> is the big one really isn't it Gent Wevelgem
0: Gent Wevelgem did you see that
1: or were you just picking yeah, I did. Yeah. I, no I did watch the, the final few k's yeah. it was uh, amazing um, we're did. talking
0: about Binium Grimai here so, so for me apart from the moment where he won the race the moment that I think about when I think about Gent Wevelgem 2022 was um, in the closing kilometers, you remember that group of five or six riders were working quite well together, weren't they? And all sharing the work and they holding Mm -hmm. on to their just about big enough lead Mm -hmm. to take it to the line. And I didn't notice Grumai doing anything other than his fair share of work. He certainly Mm -hmm. wasn't hanging around the back and kind of starting to play games at all. But, and I thought it was a really telling moment, Jasper Stoven kind of took him out the back or Mm -hmm. tried to, there was this one moment where he just kind of like dropped, you know, let the wheels go and had a word with Gramai. And Gramai kind of shook his head and then very quickly reacted and closed the gap up again and then went and pumped them all in the sprint. And I thought, good on you, because yeah. that felt to me, don't forget how young Biniam Gramai mm-hmm. is, 21 years of age, but that felt to me just watching on like a big world tour. Belgian rider throwing his weight around mm. in really a quite uh, a, a bullying way yeah. it, f- it felt like a really unnecessary act of intimidation and um, it's probably
1: fired him up and it, it might well him have backfired sometimes that gives you the confidence because it means that for Grimau, you know, it's, it, they respect me it's like they're scared of me if they're doing that and it <laughs> kind of gives you that if you have been in the group and just they'd be like, like, like oh, Stuyven there's Laporte there's this and that but then when Stuyven takes him out and has a word it's like oh they're they're paying attention to me, that means they're worried, yeah, and so it gives good you the point. confidence, yeah, then you're like oh, i I can do this That's a really important
0: yeah. thought about it in those terms mm. but like no. like it's not come from nowhere, has it glima it really hasn't you know it's been no. it's been six months, if not longer, of um no let's call it a year of of smooth and quantifiably evidence based ascending through the ranks you know, a silver medal at the under 23 world championships in Flanders, incidentally, doesn't come from nowhere, does it? Um, and no, then it we, we were commentating on, on Paris Nice and seeing how that he kept popping up there in the top 10. He was there in Milan San Remo in the mix. You know, he's
1: so a 21 year old. It's impressive.
0: It's hugely impressive. Hugely It impressive.
1: still is, even though we've got Pogaccia and Pernals and stuff. It's still, it's actually, you don't see it very often in the classics, do you? Youngsters no. like that. No, I suppose I not. Actually, seeing it more more in grand tours <laughs> these days. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. and evidently, you know, obviously, you don't see it from Eritrean uh, athletes performing in no. the classics like that. That was a completely new territory for Eritrean riders, who, by the way, so cool. At the same time that Grimay was doing that in Ghent wevelgem and you know, really making history for the development of the sport in the country he comes from um their young riders and their more established riders were tearing it up at the african world um, african continental championships as well you know and they they do occupy kind of absolutely the top spot in all the disciplines in terms of the african nations uh, eritrea um Hmm. you know it's quite it's, it's interesting isn't it because they do have that historic connection with italy um, that mm. people often attribute the, the popularity of, of bikes and bike racing to, the, to their colonial past, to the Italians bringing cycling culture to the country. But it's really interesting the way it's expressed itself. And um, there's some amazing footage of the reception that uh, they're returning athletes from the African uh, Continental Championships and Biniam Gramai who's now gone back to, um, to uh, Eritrea. Yeah, missing the Tour of Flanders. And you see, one of the reasons why well, that's significant is, my understanding is that Biniam Grimai has been operating in Europe on a 90-day Schengen visa. Oh, wow. So he's got to go back. And that's I'm, crazy. And I don't know whether that was always the plan or whether that has been kind of slightly foisted on him. Mm. Um, but it it's one of the reasons why it's really noteworthy what he's doing, because... I um I commissioned a bit of writing for the road book um, by a Rwandan sports writer last year who made the point to me um, talking about Rwandan cycling, actually. But he said, you know, one of the big reasons why it's so hard for black African riders to get a foothold in Europe is because of the um, immigration hurdles and the work permit hurdles that are put in, uh, put in their way by European countries you know it's hard to get in if you come from Rwanda or Eritrea it's hard to persuade the authorities of the validity of your work you know uh, mm. it's it's as simple as that so um, yeah it's a, I thought it was a really historic Ooh, moment
1: yeah. very historic very yeah. cool So like you needed that
0: yeah absolutely mm. so neither you or I saw anything of Catalonia
1: <laughs> not really and I live here that's bad um, That's bad uh,
0: Yeah Well, oh, I know I can tell you Sergio One Won
1: oh, the race so he, was following it. Yeah. he won the race and overall yeah, the two, But he did Carapaz
0: Yeah he didn't win a stage uh. Did he Iguita So No they know. did like
1: A crazy 120k attack On the Saturday Him and Carapaz
0: Is that how you got The race won In the end Yeah Ah yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. okay Yeah Carapaz took the stage Iguita got second And took the leader's jersey
0: and there was kind of stage wins for people like Ben O'Connor. He took a mm. he took a summit. Oh, he was ripping.
1: He, he was ripping. Simon <laughs> Clark wasn't very well. Right. A lot of people were falling This this whole sickness. Yeah. People well, are just uh, dropping like flies, aren't they?
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll just tear through the peloton and people get out the other end so it won't affect the program too much. Yeah. But it's, it's obviously a f- facet of people being too protected from infection for so long, isn't it? So it's just kind of all the usual stuff is coming back to haunt them. Um Joao Almeida took a stage. Oh, and David, Ethan Vernon yeah. took a stage as well.
1: Huh.
0: What do you, do you know about him? Have you? Is it? Um,
1: who's that? Sorry, Ethan. Sure e- Ethan you, Vernon. Yeah. No, I don't know him at all.
0: Oh, you're going to know a lot about him this year. I was made aware of him at the UAE tour where he was working for Cavendish, um, oh. uh, and uh, I think it was his world tour debut because he's a neo oh. pro, just come from the British Cycling Track background but he's an absolute unit and he's really, really fast as well. So yeah. Ethan Vernon, hugely impressive. He has uh, he's taken a
1: victory. What are you doing, David? You um, seem to be Oh no somebody's at the door. Oh somebody's um, at the door. So <laughs> what I was gonna say, there's a there's another dude, is it Ben Turner or something? Oh yeah. Well that brings us on he's to the been last rip in it, hasn't he? Mate he's yeah,
0: so he's he's one of the Trinity racing Andrew McQuaid, um, cyclocross kind of guys, Ben Turner is mm. a Yorkshire lad. He's only 22 years of age and, um, he's incredible. <laughs> so he was in the final selection yesterday of De Waal's who we were talking about that, um, in the end,
1: yeah, yeah, he, yeah, I saw him, it was two, two, him and Pickcock,
0: him and Pickcock were the two Ineos riders in that final group, b- away from which Mathieu van der Poel just attacked taking oh, tish ben with him and at that point it was like oh okay but it was such a it was such a good race there's a brilliant finish Camp, to watch
1: Campenarts was ripping as well wasn't he attacked so many different times
0: yeah he was doing his thing i don't know whether tom pidcock was ju- he looked really fresh tom pidcock after a, a layoff through illness but i, I don't know if he have almost almost felt too fresh he was really attacking kind of went went on two or three occasions and Vanderpool just i don't know just I, maybe it's that certainty which comes with great form and great you know he just left it late and when he went it was the one that really stuck you know and just one, um, attack. one attack one attack and he did it oh, There you go. yeah hang on right david I, I just just walking through his chapter three offices and pressing a letting people segue
1: in. for listeners we got an archive sale going on at chapter three at the moment 40 off loads of uh, 40 percent stuff, stuff that's yeah it's off the stuff that we're, we won't be replacing there's stuff from um really nice bags from brompton there's some of our garmin products casuals so yeah just a little bit of a archive clearance at the spring clean net so go across to chapter3.com we'll put the archive sale link in the show notes and you can go across and get some deals yeah yeah, we're going to go and get ready for summer.
0: All right. Do that. And then if you don't want to do that or you want to do both, uh, you can buy tickets for my show. I've written quite a few jokes now, David. I've written about, I've written about three funny? or four jokes. Not really. Not yet. <laughs> 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 I've got some good concepts, but they haven't actually materialized into any. So it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. I'm not panicking about it at all. I am panicking. Um, but no, do do pile in. There's a few venues already um, that I've been informed are quite close to sort of like selling out, including the, the the Lowry Theatre in Salford, which I think is leading the way in terms of ticket sales at the moment. So, um, yeah, go in and have a look. Find a, find a venue near you. There are 29 to choose from. 29, 29 to choose from. Um, and all that sort of thing. All right. Well, listen, I'll let you get on with your day because you're a busy businessman. I realize that. And I will um,
1: catch up next week after Flanders. Uh,
0: Yes, let's do that. And um, I'm going to watch Flanders for sure. You're going to have to because I'm probably not going to be able to. I'm at a family funeral. So I'll 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 have that one covered.
1: Me and Harvey will be in front of the TV.
0: But the following weekend, I'm going to go to, without portfolio, I'm going to go to Roubaix. (laughs) Not working for anybody except for Never Strays Far. I'm going to be a Never Strays Far correspondent oh, that's awesome. at Roubaix. That's going to be good, isn't it? I love it. it. That's right. going to be so good. Cool.
1: All right. Very good, Ned. Speak to you soon. Bye. See you. Bye.